0: The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of MIA Equity and Equity New Zealand. Each year, the Equity Foundation delivers more than 100 masterclasses, workshops, film screenings, in-conversations, international scholarships and on-set internships free of charge for Equity members. We give our thanks to our principal sponsor, Media Super.
1: Okay so as you know I'm Alex Jones and I'm the I'm the program manager of the Equity Foundation and today I have the very great pleasure in introducing our special guests Helen Bowden and Helen Dallimore. Now I do want to relay Letitia Cicera's apologies for not being able to take part in today's live stream. She has is not well and so she is a late apology and she did want me to relay her apologies to you all. Um but uh still got a fabulous live stream ahead of us so um uh, we're looking forward to that before we commence i would like to acknowledge the gadigal people of the eora nations and pay my respects to all the traditional owners of country and all throughout our country and recognize their continuing connection to land waters and culture and that this always was and always will be aboriginal land i want to take a minute to thank the equity foundation's principal sponsor media super Media Super has supported the foundation since our beginning in the early 2000s. They are your industry super fund and they can help you with your superannuation and provide you with financial advice. They're fully equipped to assist you with building your super. uh, So don't hesitate to contact them. And if you need their contact details, uh, contact me. Please note, we are recording this live stream. And of course, we'll have the Q&A at the end of the session. Uh, But just before I hand over to our speakers, I want to uh, make you aware of a pilot scheme that the foundation has started in Sydney. It's about taking the stress out of self-testing for equity members. Every Monday, our self-test studio in Redfern is staffed with a professional camera operator and a professional performer reader all day. Equity members are invited to make a one-hour booking at no cost. The idea is to come along with the script and the rest will be taken care of for you. So go to the Equity Foundation website and the self-test section and just book in. The program is generally supported by the Actors Benevolent Fund of New South Wales and was created in consultation with the Casting Guild of Australia. And it's a pilot program. And if it turns out there is a real need for it, we're hoping to make it a permanent and roll it out to the other states. And of course, the studios are available for other actors during the rest of the week in all the states. Uh, But no assistance is provided during those days.
0: Okay, so
1: I have great pleasure in introducing Helen Barden and Helen Delamore. Thanks, Alex. Hello, everybody.
2: Uh, I hope (laughs) none of you are on Optus, or if you are, you're having a good time at the public library or the uh, the local cafe or your mate's place because. I'm currently in the equity office uh, as I'm with Optus and I didn't have any way to communicate with the outside world this morning, but I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to say hello to the wonderful Helen Bowden. Welcome, Helen. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you. Pleasure.
2: So what made you want to be a producer? Tell us how it all began.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're going back a long way because I have been doing it for some decades, actually. Look, I think there was a certain point where I realized that I was better suited to, you know, um, personality wise, I was better suited to being a producer than being a director. Um, I did do a bit of directing early in my career and enjoyed it, but really felt that temperamentally, I was better suited to being a producer. And for the early part of my career in the first probably 10 years, I was mainly making feature films. So I made short films and feature films. And then I started working in television. And that's when I realised that being a producer was really, really, really where I wanted to be. I love, love, love being a television producer. It's a lot of fun.
2: What is it about producing as opposed to directing that you love?
0: I love putting teams together. I mean, I love looking for, as a television producer, you are very, very involved in the conception of things. So, you know, we do get ideas that are presented to us by writers and other creators, but a lot of the ideas that I have had in my career, both at Matchbox and at Lingo, are found by the producers, by me and by the other people. So reading books... Um, thinking up ideas, listening to podcasts, reading articles that we think might make an interesting television show, and going from there. Um, I, you know, it's it's something that I just absolutely love is putting together the right group of people to make something work really well, and then you know providing the best possible conditions for people to do their best work because that's my experience is that people just really want to do their very best and becoming good at working out what conditions work for which people in which combinations to get something really marvellous is is an incredibly satisfying thing and as the producer you're there right at the beginning and you're there right at the end and I love that
2: well you're uh, much loved by the industry Helen I have to say that you're always uh spoken of as one of the good guys every time I hear your name mentioned um and as one of the, the founders of Matchbox. Um, you produced projects like Stateless, Secret City, Safe Harbor, Devil's Playground amongst others and then you went on to found Lingo um, producing projects like Upright, Lambs of God and The Messenger and you've been hugely prolific domestically and internationally. I think a lot of people, actors included or possibly especially, don't really know what you do and Often us underestimate the role of the producer, and I think uh, it'd be really useful if you could give us a, a brief overview of the producer's role um, and how you create finance and get get these shows up. Because sure. um, I think sometimes actors feel like producers are these kind of sort of rich people that 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 have the the, the say to make or break their lives, and you know. The, And then the producers can often be seen as the enemy actors at the bottom of the pecking order without any power and I think um it would be really useful for us to know what what your challenges are and uh because it's not for the faint of heart is it
0: no it's not it's you know I think for I spent a lot of my career thinking why am I doing this I'm so (laughs) unsuited to this because it is it is tough. you get a lot a lot, a lot of not knockbacks. And then eventually I realized, well, you know, I may feel that it's really painful every time something gets rejected, but or or you just face a lot of difficulties, but actually, I am a very resilient person. I just, you know the first part of the pain and the difficulty and the you know, catastrophe. And then really, quite shortly afterwards, I think, Oh, I know what else I could do. I could do this other, you know. So, so I've got, I have got in my makeup, my genetic makeup, that ability to, you know, get knocked down and get back up again. And I think you really everyone, to, right? yeah, everyone in our business has to have that. Everyone. So, as a producer, um, it is as I described. You, you're really looking all the time for things that you think would make great television, and. I've been incredibly lucky that the you know the last 15 years that it, where I've been really making a lot of television has been an incredibly you know productive time because people have watched a lot of television I mean before the pandemic people were watching a lot of television then of course in the pandemic that just went through the roof so the demand has really just gone up And And with the, you know, advent of streaming platforms and all of that sort of thing, the breadth of the types of projects that you can do has just grown enormously, because you're not, you know, in the in the old days with broadcast TV things had to be very broad because everybody wanted to sit down on the couch together and watch something. And therefore it was a bit limited in what you could do, which was why I was more interested in feature films. But with that change in television to go for much more niche audiences, it's, it's an incredibly interesting time. And I have just been astonished really at the incredible things that get made into TV series. And you just think, you know, Even a few years ago, you would have just said, oh, that could never happen. And then all of a sudden, it is happening. You know, people are able to make very bold, interesting choices in television. So yes, Jason and I and our team at Lingo spend our lives reading books. So we read a lot of novels, um, but we also look at all sorts of other ideas that are out and about that we think plays, Pod, as I said, podcasts, feature articles, ideas that we come up with ourselves. We're currently putting the finishing touches on a big series for Stan called Prosper, which is a family dynasty story set in a mega church. And that was an idea of Jason's. He just came in one Monday morning and said, What do you think about, you know, a family dynasty story set in a mega church? And I said, I love it. <laughs> and it's been one of those projects that every time we've said it to the next person, they've gone, oh, I love that. And, you know, whether it's writers, whatever. So we, you know, talk about an idea, find an idea. And first, the first thing is we have to love it. And secondly, we have to think that there would be a home for it. And that we're in the Australian market. So we're not in the American market. We're not in the British market. So there are a lot of things that would be wonderful, but no one in Australia will buy them. And so, you know, you just have to put that one to one side and keep looking for something else so we find something that we like if it's a book we will option it if we can sometimes we you know have to fight off other people sometimes we don't get the books that we want Um, but we get a book we love it then we would look for a writer or a group of writers and start developing it for television and you know a few years ago you could go and pitch just with a book so when we made the secret she keeps we saw one network in the morning and another network in the afternoon. We gave them each a copy of the book and by the next morning, it was commissioned by one of those networks. So um, those days are not really here so much anymore. Now we would usually have a book and a pilot script for the first episode. And if you're successful and in persuading someone to make your show based on your book that you've optioned, then usually that network will uh, fund all of the rest of the development, because once a network or a platform decides they'd like to make your your show, um, then they become very fixated on when will it be finished. And so really that from that moment when you get that positive response of yes we want to do this, whether it's from you know binge or Paramount Plus or Netflix or the ABC or SBS. You know, really after that, almost all your work is about making it. It's not about running around trying to raise the money. Okay. Sorry, keep Yes. Yeah, so that's the first chunk is the Australian part. So when, you know, if you're dealing with, sometimes there's global buyers, of course, we I actually haven't sold anything to a global buyer. Everything I've made, I've made with a, a local platform and international distribution, or in some cases to... A co production of, you know, Upright, for example, was Foxtel in Australia and Sky in the UK co commissioning. And then we sold around the rest of the world as well. So once you have your local network all on board, then you start putting together the rest of your finance plan, which the biggest part of that is an international sales agent. So that is a company, and they're about probably about 25 of them um, who sell shows into other countries so you know with the secret she keeps it was a company called DCD rights who are UK based and they sold it you know to the BBC in the UK they sold it to Sundance in the US they've sold it to Rye in Italy they've sold it to Canal Plus in France and so on and they sell it in every territory so most of the shows that you're seeing on Australian television that's how they get financed and then that's how they get around the world. yeah
2: so you need to have uh, those sales in place before you that that's part of your budget. So before you can go any further you yeah. need to have sold it basically not no,
0: not the sales you get in a, a distribution advance or a sales advance from the company. So because the the market is very, very busy and very buoyant at the moment, there's a lot of competition. So if you know if you've got the secret she keeps, and you say, okay, Network Ten is going to make it. We're developing the scripts. Here are the first two scripts. Here's who will direct it, and then you go and you know show the twenty sales agents and ask them what sort of money will you put up? And these days, you know, the amount of money that has has grown a lot, which is great because the um, Australian government, the Australian funding of Screen Australia, has decreased, and so you know we would be finding it very, very difficult if we weren't able to get really quite big sums out of international markets now for our shows, yeah.
2: Why do you think that uh, it's harder to to sell a project? You, you said earlier <clears throat> that Australia wouldn't make, you know, you'd find a, a title or a project uh, that would be great for the UK or the US, but Austra- no one will buy it in Australia. Why do you think that is...
0: Look, it's to do with the size of our market, you know, that's really what it comes down to is it just becomes very risky once you get over a certain budget level. I mean, the budget levels have gone up and, you know, what's very challenging for us in Australia is our budgets remain, even though they've gone up a bit over the last few years they're very tidy compared with the UK or the US and so we're trying to compete you know when we made and I talk about the secret she keeps because that's something that's sold very very well for lingo we're making that you know at a budget of under two million an hour and at that time actually we made the first series considerably under two million dollars an hour but it's it's screening on BBC one up against things that are made in the UK for you know at least triple. The budget so you have to be very clever you know you have to work oh. really hard and be very smart and we I think Australians are really really good at looking at all that international content and working out how they can do it you know how they can make things look as slick with a lot less money so so,
2: so is it the case then that Australians are less likely to take a risk or, or it's 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 not as easy to take a financial risk on a project that might be a bit edgy or a bit out there a bit too ambitious or is it yeah look
0: it's it's it's. I mean they'll take risks on things but they just won't go to a budget level so yeah. you know the riskier something is the lower the budget has to be really unless you're in a very big market where you know you can get millions of people watching it and what happens you know I mean, the secret she keeps has sold very well. Upright has sold very well. The slap sold very well. But really what happens in its home market is very, very important. It's important to the people who put the money into it and it and it does affect how it sells internationally. So, you know, the local, whether it's Binge or Stan or the ABC, they're all looking at it and really, you know, looking at it very critically to say, say will our audience watch right. this and will really enjoy it? Yeah. If that makes sense.
2: No, it does absolutely. So, with the financing model and what triggers the financing model, does it have to start with a name actor? Is is that the sort of the first thing that? No,
0: it doesn't. And I think that's really a big difference between film and television. Is with film, it's very dependent on casting, and so it, it makes it really quite a different thing. We really don't talk lots about cast. I mean, when we go in and do our pitch, we'll often talk about the the kind of cast that it might be and which is of course painting a picture for the people that you're talking to about what this female detective will you know what sort of character they'll be you know the she, Helen she, she, yes yeah. the Helen dunning type exactly <laughs> and so and and the thing about a pitch of course is it's a you know it's a feedback loop so you're you know we rehearse our pitches and pitch them to each other to sort of make sure that we think we're getting across all the points and so on and so forth and then when you're in the pitch you you know you might have prepared something you think is really going to go well and they're looking at you blankly and you think well I know this is a really good story and I'm obviously not telling it very well yeah. so you know you might change what you're doing within the pitch or you definitely by the time you get to the next pitch you've figured out what it was the way that you were phrasing it or you know the way you were starting or whatever wasn't really working and and we always pitch together mostly jason and me but sometimes with other members of our staff as well like beck cubit who's our head of development and um so it's the job of the other people who are watching somebody give a part of the pitch to make sure that later on they give feedback to say yeah, that one well, that just didn't go across. And I think maybe they thought this instead of that and, and and so on. So that it's a bit of an interactive thing. And one of the things, one of the reasons to talk about cast, where you might talk about four or five actors that might play the main role and, and the second role, um, is to get a bit of feedback where you see where they get excited, where they don't get excited, you know, what matters matters to them. Yeah. yeah.
2: So what triggers your interest in a story what hooks you because the obviously the creative process starts with you and it's a hard question I know but
0: it is it's very difficult to encapsulate really what it is I mean I've done a lot of book adaptations in in my career with um and I and I love reading I love reading novels so that's part of it I'm I do love thrillers and I know audiences love thrillers. So, you know, I'm often looking for a thriller and thrillers sell well and crime sells, you know, it's still some extraordinary amount of the content in the world is crime, crime based, like 72% or something outrageous. I mean, crime people, humans love it. They just love it. They love the puzzle, they love understanding the world through. The sorts of things that can go wrong. So, you know, though I'm drawn to those things, but really it it the very first thing comes down to that reading experience. Or, you know, in the case of a podcast, if I just can't stop listening to it over yeah. a week, you know, start thinking, well, you know, if I love it, probably <laughs> yeah. someone else will love it. Yeah. And then and then thinking about well, who would if it's if it's going to be a really expensive show, um then I really need to be thinking would it work for Netflix or Amazon or Apple. I don't think Apple made anything in Australia yet um, because you're just not going to get a bigger budget out of the ABC or, you know, you'll get a slightly bigger budget out of Stan or Binge than the ABC, but not much. Yeah. It's, you know, they're all working at the same sort of level. So, yes, again, thinking about who, you know, is there an outlet that would I think, a platform that would like it? And what would it would it be realistic to make it? And, you know, again, you have to kind of keep on top of how things are changing. You know, the VFX has just changed so many things. We work with a really, really wonderful team, visual effects team. We don't make effects heavy shows at all, except perhaps Lambs of God was, you know, involved quite a lot of special effects. But you're able to do things cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, you know, not have to go to places that, you know, so you can sell something as very exotic now without going there. And I mean, with AI, that's going to be even more so I would have thought. Yeah. Yeah. So things that you think a few years ago would have been too expensive, you could look at it again and go, well, actually, maybe we could do this.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it would be cool. It's changing so fast, isn't it? It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. it's an exciting time
0: oh it's a very exciting time it's a very exciting time so to go back to the casting thing really you know so we would pitch like that with mentioning some people that we think you know could play the key roles um again just to paint a picture and to get a bit of feedback once we're you know finalizing the the financing and in australia as i've said it it, it's a real patchwork quilt and the australian producers have got very very good it's like okay you get the abc okay then you get your international sales advance and then you're going to uh screen australia and then you're going to screen new south wales or film vic or whatever and you're going to all these meetings and you know, putting it together, the board decides, yes, we'll put that money in at Screen Australia. And then the board of Screen New South Wales says, yes, we'll put in, you know, another 300000 And then finally, you've got it all together. Usually at the same time, over those months, you've been developing your scripts so that you're, you know, heading towards production. Um, But in the finalizing of your financing, mainly for the international distributor, they might be saying, well, look, we, we need to know that you'll have at least one or at least two internationally known actors. Sometimes that's an actual list um, of people. So they say, you know, we might, and that would be a list that we would come up with together. So we would come up with a list and then show that list to them. So we might have, you know, 10 actors for argument's sake, 10 Australian actors who could play the lead detective and then the sales agent will look at those 10 and tell us look these 3 will make will make a difference in right. well whether we can sell it and so we have an agreement we will we'll get you at least one of those people but with the nature of television because the platform is already thinking about, well, when will it be finished? And when can we launch? it? And how does it fit into our timetable? Because they have to have product. They're not like a film distributor who, you know, only wants to make product if it can really make them money. TV, they just have to have more stuff, which is very helpful. Um, so if you were to try and get one of those three actors who the sales agent had said would help them sell it to say the UK or Germany or France um, and you couldn't get them then you go back and say look we've tried them here are the next three you know what do you think and, and people are very cooperative I mean obviously you build trust as you go along so we after working at it for many years uh, find it easier to attract bigger actors um, and we build trust with our international distributor that we will find somebody that will work for everybody. And that's really what you're trying to do. It's it's really, it should be understood that it is really difficult to sell Australian shows internationally. It's just, it's not easy. Even in this time of high, high demand, um, our shows are, you know, not not easy to sell. And part of that is because actually people love their own content in their own marketplace so you know in the uk the top, <laughs> the top 10 shows are going to be british and in australia the top 10 shows are going to be australian is they that are. true is that is yeah. that is
2: that right yeah. i, I yeah. thought they might be american
0: no 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 so that's part of it each you know whether they're spanish they love spanish shows french they love french shows etc so there's that and then i think there's you know culturally we're not we're a bit different from the UK and the US who've you know people in those other territories are very used to seeing American shows like we are very used to seeing British shows like we are they are not used to seeing Australian shows and so you know there's reluctance to to do it so you know I think what's happened in the last you know seven or eight years is that the Australian producers have got very very good at making shows that have cost between one and a half and two and a half million dollars an hour and that sell and companies like Matchbox like Lingo like Bunya like Goalpost are all making shows like that that are now doing really well internationally I think we've really got much much better at working out you know what pace the shows have to go at what sorts of storytelling has to happen for them to sell
2: so in, in terms of the the, the casting, um, how committed are you to trying to cast Australian actors? Is it is it sometimes impossible to not uh, cast someone from overseas in order to get something made?
0: Um, it, again, it comes back to budget. If you're making a budget, if you're making something that's a show that's around about... One and a half to two million dollars an hour. You probably don't have to cast anybody international, and when you say international, it could be an Australian actor who has an international level career, because obviously we've got lots of people who are, do who are really well known internationally. For the secret she keeps, I guess it was a sort of strategic move to to cast Laura Carmichael and the as one of the leads in that, and, and you know who was um, Edith on Lady Edith on Downton Abbey. And partly it came through Amanda Mitchell, who was the casting director, who'd heard, you know, on the grapevine from one of the actor's agents that Laura was looking to do something. She was interested to come to Australia. She wanted to do something that really showed that she had a different range. She had really graduated from drama school and gone straight into Downton Abbey. And she'd done seven seasons of Downton Abbey and a movie or maybe two movies. So virtually her whole career was playing Lady Edith. And she was very keen to, you know, broaden out people's perception of her. And so it was a really great um coincidence for us that we sent her the script and she really loved it. And you know, the Agatha creature in that story was quite strange and out there. So the fact that she was a migrant and all of that sort of thing, I thought you know, worked well with the story. And it. there's just no doubt that having her in the show, as well as it being very well made, meant that it sold to BBC. And so it was the first Australian drama in I think 25 years to play in prime time on BBC One. And so for those other actors like Jessica Gao and Heather Mitchell and all of the other people who were in it, Um, that's a huge thing and you know so people get quite hung up about producers casting non-Australians but it's not always a bad thing it can be a really really good thing for people
2: well I think people often don't realize that that's the only way that the project has been sold and and been made Um, it's not you know
0: yes and that money you know comes it comes back I mean there are obviously residuals that get paid to the actors but um, we've repaid you know, a significant amount of money to Screen Australia. It's helped, it's money that's flowed back into lingo that's helped us, you know, pay writers to write more shows and so on. So what we all want is for everything, you know, for things to be successful. Yeah. yeah. So
2: who makes the final decision on the casting once you've, um, once you've got agreed to your, to your lead, your international lead or your, you the person that, that's going to sell a show. Yeah. Um, and then you've chosen your directors, or maybe you haven't. Who makes the final casting call? Is it you? Well,
0: it is me. Um, I mean, one of the jobs of the producers is to do a lot of listening and a lot of talking. So, you know, if I'm making a show for uh SPSA, so which I have been, I've been making erotic stories with Julie Eckersley, so the network, the drama commissioner is very engaged over casting casting is incredibly important to them and you know my experience of working with these commissioners at Binge and Stan and ABC and SBS is they're really really good they really know what they're talking about but sometimes it's a case of you know having a good argument about it so we're looking at you know we so we do Auditions, our casting director runs that obviously with the director. And then the director will have a short list, and then the director will show me and we'll talk that over and come down to a shorter short list. And then we'll send that to SBS and Julie will look at, you know, who we're suggesting. And you know, often we're coming forward at that point and saying, sometimes we just send one person because we don't want them to get distracted and choose someone else. So we say, okay, this is the person we want. But quite often they'll say I don't agree because, and they're talking about the character, the story, why that actor might, you know, they don't feel works. And sometimes we show them three, where you, you know, very seldom would show people more than three. Sometimes we might show five um, auditions, and then we all get get on a Zoom and 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 discuss them. So it is actually a lot by consensus but sometimes you know you have to kind of die in a ditch over somebody and say no 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 I really I think I'm right but it's it's so obviously so important to get it right it's only happened once in my life that I started shooting something and realized we'd cast the wrong person and I have to say yeah. it is just it's just horrible it's really one of the worst things you'd ever have to do so you know you have to talk to the person and say look I'm really sorry we've made a mistake this isn't working and it's very unsettling for everybody it, it's it's a nightmare but you know it's a lot in the that's US your, that's yeah. your job I I often say <laughs> my job is to run towards trouble
2: <laughs>
0: and, yeah. and you know if you're looking at the rushes and thinking oh no yeah you gotta got get straight on to it straight away
2: it happens quite a lot with US pilots people yeah. Shoot the pilot, and then they get recast. You know the, the series gets. Yeah. I know a lot of actors that have that. That's happened to. Yeah. Um. And until you've been on the other side of casting, it's really hard to understand how not personal it is. That's right.
0: Because
2: uh, you see so many great people. Um. But it's very rarely about talent or whether you've done the perfect audition, and it's always, almost always about the fit. Right. It is. Yes. The, the fit. And the
0: character to that. That's right. But then also within the ensemble that you may have already cast.
2: That's right. Yeah. What are the some of those factors that make up the jigsaw puzzle of the cast? It's obviously look, especially if you're casting a family or whatever, but then there's, you know, that, is chemistry a thing?
0: Oh, chemistry is absolutely a thing. Absolutely yeah. a thing. And to my, to my amazement, what we discovered through COVID is that a chemistry test on Zoom can actually tell you about chemistry. I I couldn't believe it you know when this was suggested we had a, a situation where we were looking for um you know husband and wife we had the wife we're looking for the husband we were looking for an actor who we weren't quite sure about but who wouldn't audition you know who was in a position where he said look I don't what well, I don't do auditions you kind of cast me or you don't cast me and we're like oh what do we do what do we do what do we do and anyway the casting director said well what we do is we have a chemistry test and therefore you're not cast you're not doing an audition, a audition. You're doing a chemistry test you say well, but look, we, want you, but we do <laughs> we do need to be sure that you look as if you're married to your wife and um I was blown away I was blown away we did it with you know three actors for the one actress and it was instantly obvious by Zoom who she should be married to. So, Wow. Because
2: most auditions are now via, well, first auditions are yeah. now via self-tape or Zoom. And obviously yeah. this allows you to to see a lot more people. Um, but do you ever find that it's a, a barrier to seeing the right performance out of an actor?
0: Look, I Don't I haven't seen that. I mean, I'm not really at the coalface as much because the casting director is the one who's, you know, getting those auditions in. I think it's interesting. I mean, we've been so resistant and felt like it's a sort of second rate way to go, and so on. That's that um, service that Alex was talking about for actors is just sounds absolutely fantastic to be able to go and put down a tape. you know in proper conditions um with someone operating the camera just sounds and an actor you know and cast a read against you and so on it just sounds great so look i haven't i don't find it an issue and i think actually we may be reaching a point where we think this is actually a better way to do it than in person
2: yeah
0: so and after all what you are watching you know when you're a tv producer is you're watching what what's on the screen so Yeah, yeah
2: yeah I think for us actors we sometimes feel a little bit like we're just taking a shot in the dark because yeah. we've got the we've got the script but what if we've got the character wrong um and a short character brief doesn't always tell you what the director's looking for you know yeah but yeah. I guess the the essence of you is going to come through and and if you're in any way right that a good director and producer can see yeah. that there's a that that mass that that Performance can be massaged or can be yeah you
0: know, and we up. we rely hugely on our casting directors you know yeah. they're very much a part of the creative team a lot of discussions you know about the tone and style of the piece they obviously work really closely with the director um all of those things
2: how do you work with the casting director do you just do you brief them and then they send you a short list or do you do you send them a list of people you'd like to see how does it
0: Um, yeah mostly we send it send them the script and say you know what do you think because it's really nice to get you know we might have of course been looking through you know lots of actors to put together our pitch and say well it could be any of these you know people but to give your casting director the freedom to say hey here are my thoughts you know it it, that's what's really exciting I just I love casting I love it I love it I mean it's very nerve-wracking and especially if someone's telling you like if it's the commissioner telling you I don't agree I don't think you've got the right person and I'm insisting I'm like no I'm sure I really know that this is this is who we should cast that's nerve-wracking but it's it's just seeing scripts read by actors is just it's wonderful because you there are all these things that you didn't realize were in the scripts even though you know them and love them and you think wow how did I never see that but that's a process that goes on right through the making you know it's you see it in an audition where you realize oh She's carrying guilt or shame or you know some other nuanced thing that I didn't really quite realize in that moment, and you're still discovering those things as you're doing the sound final sound mixing. So, and yeah. Different
2: actors will bring different things to yeah. different characters, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. it's just a question of what yeah. fits most with everybody's vision of of how that person. Yeah, is.
0: And, and and absolutely, you can be surprised, and it is really an important part of the casting process that you do look at several. People, I mean, you know, if you're in a world where you're just offering, you know, the lead role to someone that has to be an offer, that's different. But if you're, you know, looking o- open casting, it really changes your view of what you're looking for once you see three, four, five different actors bring something quite different to it. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah.
2: You recently worked on Erotic Stories, um, an anthology series which has just premiered on SBS, which I'm really enjoying, by the way. Thank you. It's funny, it's touching, uh, the intimacy is beautifully handled. Where did the idea for this one come from? Did someone bring it to you? Did you commission it?
0: Well, amazingly, and, and it's the only time it's happened in my now long career, is SBS rang and asked us if we would do it so in fact Donna Chang who used to be our head of development went to SBS as a drama commissioner and not long after she got there she rang and said you know we've got this idea and we'd like lingo to make it Um, and I'll be honest I was quite daunted I I haven't made an anthology series and the challenges of them are, are many because Well, you've got a fresh story and a fresh world every single episode. So there's no economies of scale. They're difficult to attract international distributors to for the reasons that, you know, what the main way that people watch things is they watch an episode or two episodes and get completely hooked and then have to finish it and then have to watch the next season. Um,
2: Is that as important with somewhere like SBS, though, having the international sales?
0: Oh yes, we can't make anything in Australia without
1: really a nice.
0: big international advance. Yeah, okay. unless it's a tiny sort of web web sort of series, you know. So I was a bit daunted, but I was excited as well, and it has turned out to be just a really, really, really wonderful experience. I loved I loved making it, and Lingo was very proud to be making it, and it brought the company into contact or getting to work with just a whole lot of new new people, which was something we really, you know, knew we needed to do and valued the opportunity to do. But for me to go to set and see the set being run by people in their 30s, a lot of women, a lot of people of color marching about, doing a great job, I just thought this is, this is fantastic. This is the moment that we were waiting for. And it's really great to see that it's here.
2: And it comes through uh, when you're watching it as well because you know i'm I'm someone who's not always that comfortable watching intimacy and and nudity and sex scenes up on the screen because I've empathized with the actors and I sort of taken out of the story and I'm imagining sort of 20 sweaty men two feet away from them um, <laughs> and how unsexy that would be yeah. um, so but uh, it really it I felt like a fly on the wall of of, of people's intimate moments but not in a creepy way you know. So if everyone needed an intimacy director, I guess it would have been on this project. That must have been a big part. Yeah, two of them. Too. Two of them, full
0: time. Yeah. It that must have
2: been a big part of your job as a producer <laughs> to make sure that everyone felt safe and comfortable to give great performances. How did yeah. you?
0: Yeah. And look, obviously we've got a much <clears throat> increased understanding of the need for safety and, you know, it would just become, you know, slowly over the years, more aware of of what can go wrong for people and how people can be traumatized. And, you know, and those things are not only damaging to the people involved, they're damaging to the show and they're damaging, they're they're just not anything that you want as a producer to be involved with. I mean, obviously for all of my career, the physical safety of people on sets has been, you know, really paramount. And, you know, I was a close friend of someone who had a a stuntman die on her show. And it was just, I mean, it was a real moment of thinking, oh, my God, um, you know, I, that would change your life. So, you know, there's been a lot of concern about physical safety and and rightly so, because film sets are dangerous. But we're, you know, realizing and acting now on, on making sure that people are safe. So, yes, intimacy was a really big thing. Just back to your point about you think about the 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 actors and everything. There's a beautiful episode of it, and please, I really would encourage all of you, all of you to get onto SBS On Demand and have a look because there are eight different twenty five minute stories. There are comedies, there are dramas, there are all sorts of things on there. And I think you know, hopefully, people will really like them. The the reviews and feedback have been fantastic. There's a First Nations story called Powerful Owl with two First Nations uh, leads, actually three. And there's a sort of love triangle of three First Nations people, which is, you know, I think the first time we've seen that on Australian television. And the writer Sarah Khan is quite a new writer. And we showed Powerful Owl at South by Southwest. And she was asked afterwards, you know, what did you think when you saw the finished film? And She talked about how incredibly upset she was. She said she hated it, but also she just thought, what sort of monster am I that I wrote that and made made those poor actors, you know, go through it. And uh, then she showed it to, showed the show to her best friend, who's also indigenous, who just said, oh, you know, don't be daft. You've done something absolutely amazing to show such a positive uh, image of sex, between First Nations people of love between First Nations people on screen, which we just, you know, don't see. It's a political act that you've done, and you should be very proud of it. And I know it was very challenging for the actors. And Letty could have talked about that if she was here. That both of our leads, I Hick and Guruan Knox, both said yes and then said no. So they said read the script, said yes, I want to do it, and then had a panic and rang up and said mm-hmm. actually no, I don't want to do it. I My auntie will see it or my Nana will see it. And you know, in our community, that's, you know, not gonna be good. And they were very courageous in doing it and they were so happy and proud. Yeah. So happy and proud. Yeah.
2: Um, all right, I think we need to go to questions now. Um, I think Alex has some questions in the chat section. Yeah, I can read them out. I'm happy to do it, or whichever you like.
1: Can you see them there? There's one from Colin and one from Maria.
2: Okay. I've got one from Maria here, which says, thank you, Helen, for sharing today regarding your story about realising you cast the wrong actor. What things made you realise they weren't right? And did you you obviously recast?
0: Yeah. It's that chemistry on the screen that just isn't there. And you're, yeah. I I, As I said, it's only happened to me once. And... I yeah I just realized that person was not not the character that we had developed over the script scripting process so look it's it's quite a um it, you know and I think back on it it's sort of a gut reaction and then you know I don't just decide oh no it's not I mean obviously I'm working with the director I might be working with the network and saying look we, we've got a really big situation here this is this is not right. You um, must have
2: seen in the audition, you must have felt from. Yeah. The- I mean,
0: you've made a mistake. You've made a mistake. And but in the
2: audition, you thought they were right.
0: Yeah. But yes, and I guess that's you know you you, you can they're performing yeah. solo on camera, maybe with an actor reading against them. Um, it's not an it's not a total picture. And, all, you know, like I've had a long career and it's happened once.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: so 99% of the time that process works really well. And it, as I describe, it's layers of it. So, you know, first the casting director goes wide and then they, you know, come up with a shorter list. Then they work with the director. Then they, you know, the director and the casting director come up with a shorter list. And then that comes to me and then we get a shorter list still. And if I'm not sure, and usually anyway, I will show Jason. And, um, sorry about that. And, uh, you know, so there are a lot of layers before we make that decision. <laughs> and so it is, it is a very heartbreaking and painful business if, if it turns out to not be right, but it's rare, I should say it's very rare.
2: Um, so far I haven't been fired. So, uh, fingers crossed, touch wood. I've got another question here from, uh, apologies if I mispronounce your name is Srestra who's who asks uh thank you she says thank you so much for this the chat what do you think are the possibilities for act based actors in the industry
0: look the act i mean in terms of getting to sydney that's not out of the question uh, but there's not really an industry in canberra it's it's all in sydney or melbourne really so i mean these days with zoom and everything else it's you know, there's no reason for people not to live anywhere, actually. And then, but you would have to come to Sydney for the work.
2: Yeah, does it okay. make sense? I've got one here from David Kiora Helen. I'm pitching a scripted anthology here in uh, in New Zealand, Narotaroa, mental health focused. I haven't seen erotic stories, but I was quite influenced by Modern Love as I built the project. I get that. Uh, the request for erotic stories came to you from SBS and not vice versa but do you have any advice for pitching an anthology
0: yes it's 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 no doubt it's challenging it's because as I say it's going to be challenging to make because you have to have all these different stories I mean look at it would depend on the scale of it I mean the scale of what we've made for SBS is quite big compared with a lot of international ones. I mean, it's not, it's not at all like Black Mirror, which obviously cost a lot of money. um, But neither there is a, you know, um, the Duplass brothers did one that was all set in a motel room. And, you know, so every week, there was a different event, you know, interaction that happened in a motel room. So those are kind of your different ends of the scale of what, what it would cost to make. So I think, you know, there are challenges around raising the money. One of the difficulties with anthologies is uh, they're not often, not all the stories are evenly good. So we put an enormous amount of work in with erotic stories to try and make sure that all eight stories were really strong. We didn't have, you know, a couple of lemons in there. Yeah. I, I, it is, there's just no doubt about it. It's quite a challenging format. It's exciting because you get a, you know, Lots of entry points for audiences. So you know, if you look at erotic stories, there are gay stories, there are lesbian stories, there are older people, there are you know, First Nations. There's a you know wide range of of different worlds for those stories, and so therefore there's a wide range of entry points for audiences wanting to watch it. Yeah.
2: Okay. I've got one here from Hannah. She, she says, earlier on you mentioned it's an exciting time for TV worldwide you watch a lot of international TV and say wow, um, something that Aussies might not necessarily even consider putting on screen. Do you have any examples of some great TV you've been watching that has given you that wow factor and why?
0: Oh, gosh. Well, Do like everybody. To TV? TV? The, the Bear season two, you know, yes. I mean, that you know, just, I don't know if everybody's seen that. They probably have, but, you know, that is just beautiful, beautiful television. Both seasons of The Bear have been fantastic. And, you know, I watch loads of different television. So, you know, I watch Slow Horses, for example, which is a seesaw show that's been uh, made in the UK that's, you know, a much bigger budget. But seeing something like The Bear gives you such kind of energy because, it's set in a Chicago beef sandwich shop and you know with a small cast and you think there's no reason that we couldn't make something like that in Australia at all it's all about the writing it's all about the performing it's all about the storytelling um, getting that to that high level I mean you see Succession for example of course that's great writing and great storytelling it's also shitloads of money you know there's helicopters there's luxury apartments there's you know, it is a very, very expensive show and it's wonderful that it's so good. But for me, I, I do get really excited when I see things that are made on much more modest budgets, which are also just riveting, riveting. Yeah,
2: I agree with you. I got one here from colin and um, thank you very much for sharing your time. Uh, what is the best way for a first time feature filmmaker to get their first feature made? And uh, what would make yourself as an established producer and actor, I guess that's me, want to work with a first-time feature filmmaker? Is it based solely off a great script, previous short film work, or a great pitch, maybe all three?
0: All three, yeah. So it, it's very much it's very much script-based. Um, I don't really make feature films anymore. Never say never, but I haven't made one for a long time. So it's very much about script but you know it's you'd also then as a director be wanting to see their work so a short a really good short film is is important and then and then yes the ability to tell that story in a way that's credible and and so on it's is good I would say I don't want to be too discouraging but the feature film business is pretty tough it's pretty tough it's people are not going to the movies and when they are going to the movies, they're going to see, you know, really big um Killers of the Flower Moon, that sort of story. So it is making it very tough and I would be <laughs> encouraging people working work in TV. That's, you know. Yeah.
2: So maybe thinking about uh, a limited series, if, if you've got yeah. something that's a feature length, maybe you could do a four-part, you know, one-hour yes limited yeah yeah Yeah. 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 rather than yeah yeah it's uh it's it's tough everywhere but it seems to be a great time for tv and great time for australian tv i i feel like things have changed so much since um since i first started in the business and you had to go to the three or four networks uh, yes um, and
0: and, you know the australian government you know which is a fantastic thing uh moving forward on putting a quota on the streamers and saw yesterday the draft of of that proposal um so this is a thing that says that all the streamers will have to spend a percentage of what they earn in Australia on Australian content and you know that is is in my opinion a wonderful thing and will make sure that we have a very strong cultural you know um life on television.
2: Um, I've got one more quick one here uh, from Sarah. Uh, Thanks for sharing all your knowledge. Do you think there's a potential for a market for short films with streaming platforms? Could they be going in that direction?
0: Um, I think it's unlikely, unfortunately. I think YouTube have got that pretty covered. The thing for a streaming platform, again, it's about economies of scale. What they're trying to do is attract eyeballs and so that's the big challenge for them and that's what they look at when they're looking at any project is you know do I love it but also how would I get people there so there's you know there's a lot of great projects around that would be good but finding a way to get an audience to come and watch them is more complicated and so they don't want to put a huge amount of effort into getting people to come and watch a short film they want to put that huge effort into you know, getting people to come and watch a season or preferably several seasons of something. So it's, it's it's again, an economy of scale thing.
2: Is that true of web shows as well, would you suggest? Yeah. Web, web shows belong on the web?
0: <laughs> web show, shows belong on the web, they do. And if you're making web shows, phone. which I, you know, highly, highly recommend doing, again have a really good think about well how will I get people there because you know there are some wonderful wonderful shows out there but no one is seeing them so when you when you think about what you want to make really have a look at some other web series that have been made and work out which ones have got audiences and how did they get those audiences you know
2: is that that a really um is that the path really these days then for somebody who who wants to end up with a the long form TV to make TV show to, to make a a proof of concept web web show and get that played and get interest in that.
0: Yeah, certainly it's a really, you know, great, great way to start. Um, And then there are career paths within television as well for writers, directors, you know, I mean, if it's writers, it's often, you know, start as a note taker and then maybe a researcher and then, you know, get to do, maybe get to, Write an episode or co-write an episode, and then write an episode, and you know, work your way up.
1: Yeah. Just before I hand back to you, Helen, I do want to say thank you both to both of you because this has been, you know, a wonderful sixty minutes. I really, really appreciate Helen Bowden. I know how incredibly busy you are, so to give us this time, uh, we are just so thrilled and really appreciate. Absolute
0: pleasure. It's a real pleasure. And please, all all the actors we love actors we love actors at lingo we love writers and we love actors and we couldn't you know we just couldn't do our work without you and you know we do and i know that my other colleagues in the industry as well just do try to treat everybody as absolutely well as we can and protect you from the pressures that are coming on onto us to you know try and provide the best environment for you to do your best work
1: well thank we appreciate you. it and, and helen as always Helen who i'm always bringing up so thank you again thank you so what, a lovely, what a lovely
2: the lovely chat helen on helen thank yes. you <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much one
0: squared yeah. <laughs> yeah fantastic thanks very thank much thank
1: you thanks All everyone, thanks everyone. everyone. Thanks. and to everyone, who, everyone who's here today thank you
0: thank you for listening to this podcast Brought to you by our principal sponsor, Media Super and the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work we do, visit equityfoundation.org.au
1: or follow Equity Foundation Australia on Facebook and Instagram.